Hello, and welcome to the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast for May 2022. I'm Ken Cadet, and with me is Annie Deep Parhart, Chief Information Officer at Entrust and member of our Cybersecurity Institute. Hello, Andy Deep. Hey, Ken. Good to, good to be here, and thanks for, uh, for hosting this. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and, and so I figured, you know, this is our first one. We're going to start out with probably the biggest story out there right now, and that's the the Russian war in Ukraine. Um, and we're not going to put aside the daily human tragedy, but we are going to talk about the cybersecurity side of this because this war is also a cyber war um, and it could have far reaching implications for enterprises and governments around the world. And to help us figure all this out, we've also invited our colleague Mark Rucci to join us. And Mark is the CISO at Entrust and part of our Cybersecurity Institute team. Before that, Mark held computer network security positions in the U.S. European Command and several other enterprises. So hello, Mark, and welcome. Hi, Ken. Excited to be here. Um, So let's just dive right into this. Um, When it all started, I think the fear was that cyber attacks to countries like ours and in the West that are supporting Ukraine would start happening from Russia almost immediately. Now it sort of feels like this this looming threat, this threat that's sort of sitting there out on the edges. So what's going on right now, Mark? Maybe just talk about what's what's happening um, in this situation today. Well, Ken, you bring up a real good point. I think there is this expectation that the cyber warfare was going to expand dramatically beyond Ukraine fairly quickly, similarly as it had in some of the other uh, conflicts that Russia has had in the past. Because uh, early on, we did see lots of ransomware, you know, the ransomware that was designed to destroy systems, to destroy infrastructure. And ransomware and denial of services are kind of two of the classic methods and tactics, techniques, procedures that they use. And generally, the they might not be focused wider, but they tend to expand on their own. It might be an intent to go after a single set of infrastructure. And we really haven't seen that yet at this point. That's a, a really good point. I think everybody's been waiting for it. Um, I do think a lot of this is because the whole, in, in, in old, in, since nu- nuclear saber rattling is going on right now, the reason that there weren't things, there wasn't nuclear war in the past was we had a thing called mutually assured destruction. And we have made it pretty clear as a country that going after our critical infrastructure could result in um, attacks going back. So, you know, whether that's the rationale why or whether people just have better defenses to the date, that's a good question. So that's what I was going to ask, Mark. And I think we talk about this stuff quite often sort of within our, uh, our corporation as well. I think, you know, my observation has been is that over the last say, 12 to 24 months, there has been a lot more sort of awareness uh, uh, around cybersecurity. And, you know, that's not because of the global conflict right now, but also because of, you know, the colonial pipeline stuff, some of the solar winds and some of these other activities. He said one would tend to believe that the general resilience of corporations, especially the ones that are a lot more global, is higher than what it was. That doesn't mean that it's complete and it's never going to happen, but I do think the resilience and the awareness around being prepared for something like this generally is higher, which was, I think, when you and I were talking about this stuff, even with some of the, you know, some of the vulnerabilities that came up with, for example, with the Log4j stuff or with the uh, with the shell scripts, et cetera, the time for organizations to recover for something like that is at a record low. 
meaning organizations are able to recover from pretty, pretty quickly. So do you think that plays into it as well, that the globally, you think corporations are more prepared for something like this? I think absolutely. In your point, you, know, you talked about Log4j, solar winds a little over a year ago, and then the global pandemic of everybody working from home, it did result in an investment in a lot of companies in security and their security postures because they realized that once they had the distributed workforce, trying to secure it was much more difficult. Now, to your point, does that mean that the, a lot of companies are completely resilient? No, there's still lots of holes out there. But without a doubt, there has been an increased focus. Yeah, I think I, I think that's true. And so, I mean, do you think that do you think the perception of uh, the, the perception of the fear right now is sort of at the right level? I know that there's been a lot of um, you know a lot of U.S. government, for example, talk and warning uh, about cybersecurity uh, and about, especially for critical infrastructure companies. I know there's recently been new law about disclosure and about how to react and analyze cyber attacks, uh, you know, but it seems like there's a, a varying, a varying degree of commentary on how ready we are for, you know, what, what may come or what's coming or even the threats that are out there today. Well, I think there's definitely always going to be a soft underbelly, but th the type of threat has changed because historically it was intelligence collection you know, where foreign entities were, they weren't seeking to destroy anything. They were looking for data, for designs, and they were all pretty good if you look at the history book of the last 20 years of pulling data away. But kind of going back, you know, particularly with the Russian invasion of Georgia, where it was more the, the, the ransomware, the denial of service, the defacing of, of web pages, you know, for national means, that clearly has gotten more attention in the last few years. And I think that people are much more aware of that. And as, as Anadip had pointed out, the idea of ransomware, you know, was crime groups trying to make a buck, a quick buck. And when I say quick buck, you know, millions of dollars. Um, that's kind of merged in with a lot of these traditional offensive ideas of destroying systems and denial of service as ways to get influence or, or, or uh, achieve your strategic objective. And, I'm, you know, I think that's a really interesting point, right? You know, so, for example, I, in, in conversations with sort of my peer group, at least across the across the country here and, and a little bit more sort of globally as well, I think, and this, I don't have empirical evidence, so to speak, but I am seeing that organizations are, are lowering sort of the threshold to anomalous behavior. I mean, there is a general feeling in the C-suite as well as with the, with the boards is that, you know, we need to be a little bit more aware. The thresholds are a little bit lower, uh, which traditionally used to be always considered like, well, that's a business disruptor. And, you know, but given all of the activity that has happened, I get a clear sense from, from sort of my peer group is like the boards, the C-suites are a lot more prepared to lower the threshold and, and to be able to partner within the, the C-suite in terms of communicating and, and, and working to, to address when something like this would happen or preparing for it, involving the board quite a bit. As Mark, you know, we, are, we, we do it in our businesses as well. And the bigger thing is, Ken, to your point, I think there is a willingness to share some of this information with the, with the authorities as well. So, so I think from a, from a broader cyber security and resilience point of view, I, I think that, 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 that is helping uh, and 
you know, that is helping sort of, you know, you know, tackle this problem from a more proactive basis as well. Uh, so I think I think that's a good movement from where I where I said. Well, that's good to hear and gives us uh, gives us a little a little bit more comfort, although obviously there's a lot of work in that and there's a lot of kind of diligence in that. It seems like like like, like from a cyber from a war standpoint, we've cr- we've entered sort of a new phase of cyber war that uh, I know Microsoft just came out with a report on what you what uh, the way Russia has sort of coordinated almost its cyber activities with with its attacks. How do you think that how do you think that's going to affect, you know, you know, the rest of the world as this as this happens or or how does it change what our posture is in getting ready for the the next phase of the world? Well, I don't know if there are, you know, the tactics, techniques and procedures, TTPs, um, the, to your point, outside of being, they've done a good job of focusing in on Ukraine. They have not created this splash that went outside of, uh, generally outside Ukraine, you know, meaning that they didn't, some of the malware that they, that the GRU produced is not all over North America or Europe today. Um, I think that is a definite change. Um, they've been able to control the, the sprawl of theirs. And I think that that, you know, the defenses against it are still going to generally be the same. But the fact that they're able to still keep as focused as they are to this date, I think most people have been surprised. Agreed. Agreed. So I think, you know, I definitely would consider like this is a sort of watershed moment for, for the global business economy, so to speak, and the community. And that's not just from a cyber attack and cybersecurity perspective alone. And I can, the way, so in talking to, 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 to some sort of folks that I, I speak with on a normal basis to just build my knowledge base, it's, it's very clear that, you know, we, we are acknowledging sort of what a nation state can do at a varying different levels. You know, and of course, you know, like you said at the opener, there is the whole unfortunate people uh, 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 cost of this, which is extremely sad. But the business cost is that I think this is my my way of looking at it. People are defining, so to speak, the crown jewels of the company a bit differently. What used to be considered sort of a low cost production type in apparatus within an organization suddenly is becoming very critical because of the supply chain impact, because of the, you know, your modern IT and the supply chains are very interconnected. And as the digital transformation continues, folks are looking at things which were considered before as commodity. Now they are so critical to your success that people are, most C-suites and boards are reconsidering what is uh, the, the formula, so to speak, of saying what should be close to to your business and what should be your partnership with, with the suppliers, et cetera. So I think there's some interesting dynamic going on from how you organize and how you deliver value to your customers as well. I, I, I couldn't agree more because, you know, it's interesting to see this develop historically because, you know, years ago you, you were trying to protect your crown jewels, but then you would find out that the bad actors would come in, you know, through a backup server that was in some obscure location and they would kind of make their way across. So we kind of thought, okay, we have to worry about defense in depth um, to where we are today. You know, the, the other things, and Anadeep had mentioned with some of the CIO circles and some of the CISO circles that I've been in, you know, initially when this all started, we all talked about what are, what are we seeing? What have we been attacked? If so, where, what's it look like? Um, we didn't get the data that we thought we would. 
Um, but I do think some of the things that have changed, like intelligence sharing that's going out there or an intelligence service is become more critical to have being having a presence on the internet. You know, whether you get that feed from your local government, whether you contract out with a country that or a company that says that's keeping track of all of the attackers, all of their IP addresses, how their attack looks and putting that real time into your systems, you won't be able to live without some of those longer terms. And it's the same thing with your supply side, with your open source software. All of those are getting more attention these days. That's fantastic, right? It's the fundamental how, at least, you know, people like us, Mark, who've been in this industry doing this job in sort of various different phases, this is like a new way of running either the cybersecurity apparatus or the infrastructure in a business. And you got to look at it a little bit differently. And, you know, you said, I'd love your thoughts on saying, there is, this is just, again, you know, not empirically, but a large population of organizations have built the foundational infrastructure, which allows them to sort of increase your readiness for some of these things. I think it's kind of like, you know, how it used to be that when, when PCs and computers became a way of conducting business, it was, it's a given. It's an appliance that everybody needs in order to do business. I think you know, it's getting to the point that the basic foundational cybersecurity kind of, so to speak, lock, put the locks in your you know, house uh, and to have the, the protection of the said assets, it's becoming the knowledge of it and the, the acknowledgement that you need to invest in that is becoming much more understood. So Mark, do you see that, you know, that that's sort of happening in, in the industry as well? So that roughly would you take a guess at saying what kind of industries are leading and what kind of industries are perhaps just still catching up? Well, clearly there's the, the regulated industries, the critical infrastructure. So, you know, the banking industries, the insurance industries, they've been required, you know, for 20 years to have infrastructure. Um, so that along with a fair amount of high tech companies, I would say have led the way. But to your point, right now, a lot of small and mid-sized companies are finding attractive alternatives, whether it's through outsourcing or a service um, that will facilitate what they need to do. And and I, I kind of going back to your point about the investment, I think a lot of companies that traditionally made investment had a large investment, you know, their SAMs, their firewalls. Having the COVID-19 and having a dispersed work field pushed a lot of those out to the end point, which has really helped uh, with intelligence and understanding what's happening real time. It wasn't obviously, it wasn't driven from uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now, but we're, we are, those who have made an investment there are reaping the rewards of it. Yeah, so one of the things that's really clear is that uh, supply chain is more important than ever. And it sort of leads to more communication between companies, between you know companies and each other, companies and governments, you know, you know, companies and their suppliers. And obviously, you know, for any company, you're in both positions at once in a lot of cases. Maybe talk about talk about that a little bit. How has that changed, you know, over the past few months or even the past year? I think from my perspective, one of the things that's really interesting is, right? I think that the ecosystem that we've built is, is dependent on a lot of partners, not only how products are built, but also how how organizations deliver services to their, their customers because of just the transformative nature of some of the digitization that's happened. So I think what, 
you know, what's happening a lot in my mind is that to your point, the communication uh, between partners to be able to sort of see that, you know, instead of, for example, in a supply chain type situation, instead of just holding all the supplies, it's, it's more partnership between the consumer and the suppliers to be able to say, how do we actually plan better? So you're seeing a lot more technology being deployed where you can plan and project sort of what your demand is going to be so that you can work with your suppliers properly. Uh, to be able to say where where you can have, where, where in the ecosystem do you need redundancy in terms of what different parts and solutions you should have. Even Mark and I talk about this stuff, even within our world from purely where you know, consuming and buying technology is relatively easier uh, compared to uh, if you have to buy physical parts, but redundancy of networks, redundancy of certain pieces of your critical infrastructure, it's counter to your traditional uh, uh, you, you know, cost-based analysis. But if you if you put it in a risk perspective, you're seeing sort of some of that dynamic is changing. You have to work with multiple vendors. Your, your vendor diversity for your critical infrastructure from a supply chain perspective is becoming a scorecard that we track you know, within C-suites as well as with the board of directors because it's a very critical uh, risk that the company has to cover. So really interesting things uh, that are happening that are changing slowly the business in response to uh, some of these broader a geopolitical event and, and, and the companies are getting ready for it. Mark, would you agree? No, absolutely agree, Anadik. From just a pure security perspective, supply side has gone from slow. What I mean by that is the, the questionnaires, the audit-esque, you know, where you're asking questions to your suppliers, didn't necessarily give you a good view of how what their operational security was to now there's a demand for constant monitoring, constant understanding of what's going on. There's various services and ways to measure how they're doing, um, you know, kind of like the Dun & Bradstreet, except for security. Um, and it, there's a continual plethora, I hate to, but I always like that word of, of intake that we send out to our suppliers and we as a customers, or our revenue generating customers do the same to us. So the dynamic is completely changing and it's becoming much more operationally focused. Yeah, it's something we've said. We've, I know we say a lot, like nobody does cybersecurity alone, right? So I, I know government has been a big part of this as well. You know, we've seen the Shields Up program, um, areas like that. You know, how is, how is, that, how is that going? Is the, is the government doing enough? Are they doing, so, doing the right things? Shields Up is a very good program. Um, a lot of very fundamental controls that every company should have. So if people, if they have not looked at it, they should be looking up at it or thing like Shields Up and looking at the controls that are recommended. Um, there is a difference, obviously, between that. You know, when you say, is the government doing enough? Um, it, it's kind of like they're putting up a, a, a plan, a, bl a blueprint. They don't really tell you how much it costs other than they could cost a lot and it could add a lot of friction to your business. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the challenge is. A lot of companies don't have the resources for what's listed on there. And even if they do, the friction, um, the friction that we introduce, uh, the, the, the CIOs, the businesses of the world don't like it because it slows down business. Um, so it, it, I, 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 it's a way of saying that I think Shields Up is a great fundamental blueprint for you to design internally and take what you can implement. I personally really, you know, like the way Shields Up is structured. 
which is I think it gives you a framework. Uh, it, it's like Mark, we talk about even from a from a said NIST cybersecurity framework point of view. It starts setting the baseline from a from a government perspective to say that these are the the essential you say protect activities. These are the defensive activities you should be doing. And I think a lot of organizations that you see, it sounds very obvious if you are at higher in the maturity curve. But it's good to see that that you know, especially in the U.S., the government is actually taking uh, uh, taking control of saying how to define how how should corporations secure themselves. So Mark's, to Mark's point, it's a continuum, right? You can do it gives you a way, framework of doing it. You can do a little bit of it, and you can do all of it depending on sort of your risk appetite and the risk posture of the company. But from my point of view, I think it's it's uh, it, it's kind of like a basic infrastructure in terms of say in the banking industry or in any other government industry, this is the horizontal layer that is being provided that we can innovate and build on rather than so saying everybody's got to go build their stuff themselves. So I think there's an efficiency uh, that that organizations will benefit from it. And I think it gives a standard framework uh, to, to manage your security posture. Sure, um, for lack of better description, because they haven't historically been attacked, which is why, you know, the, 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 the quick turnaround or intellectual theft hasn't necessarily impacted them because they're not a target. So, uh, but I think they're fast becoming a target, particularly in the global nature. You know, when I think about, you know, the world going from a unipolar to a multipolar, you know, between Russia, China, India, the US, everybody looking for influence all of this stuff will will um, start to splinter along those lines to a certain degree. So they need to have their own shields up. It sounds like uh, the, the word that keeps coming to mind and that you hear a lot is resilience, uh, that, that, you know, as a, as a company, you know, we want resilience for our organizations. Um, you know, for business leaders, you know, what, you know, maybe Andy, Deep is something you can, you can answer a little bit. You know, what, what gives you that sense? How, how can you get to be confident that your organization is, uh, you know, has the resilience it needs, you know, in the face of, you know, what, what is coming? I think, uh, so one of the fundamental things, like I was mentioning before, is there is a lot of information available in order to sort of how to make your organization resilient, so not this type of risk alone, but 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 generally the risk to the corporation. Usually the thinking was, even as little as like five to 10 years ago, these were events people thought would happen to somebody else. So the general knowledge of saying how to organize the company, how to have committees and subcommittees where you can at least talk about some of this stuff and document this stuff, which means is carving out time in organizations very deliberately to focus on bringing like-minded people together to be able to say, how should we respond to this? How should we organize and, you know, and report out to our C-suite, our CEO, as well as to our, our boards is extremely important. So, so organizations need to spend the time usually in a very outcome-driven, very speed-to-market-driven organization. Those types of things are considered, man, we are slowing things down. But it's really, really important because it's not a euphemism anymore. It just takes one bad event. It could bring a very, very successful company down. So I think these are essential risks that need to be taken care of. And like Mark and I talk about it is that, you know, what used to be insurance, this is your corporate insurance that you're building by building the talent, the venues, the mechanisms, and if you invest the time on it, I think you'd be a lot more resilient as you go forward. 
Then the second piece is the obvious, which is like there's a lot of technology available. You can you can be really good at responding when it event, events happen. You need to have those muscles. You need to be really good at protecting before the events happen so events don't happen to you. And finally, to be able to say you got to have communication. This is one of those places where an organization cannot be successful if there is only one part of the organization that's worried about it and everybody thinks it's a burden. So the communication between different functions, different businesses, and to your previous point with your suppliers, as well as with the, with the government is extremely important. And I think these are the muscles that, in my opinion, organizations, big or small, who will build these muscles or exercise these muscles if they already have them will be extremely successful. And the natural conclusion of it is leaders who will actually do this are going to see their careers grow as well, because this is the skill, in my opinion, that's going to be needed going forward. I, I would actually, I concur exactly with what Anadeep said. And I, one of them, I, I, was start, I was almost started to chuckle, because if you're the company that says, thinks that the CISO, the security director, the CIO is going to protect you and you can kind of operate like you always have, you're missing the point. You're missing the point badly. The, the CISO, the security director, the CIO is going to be able to provide the framework, can provide the conceptual ideas, can provide a reference architecture, but it really does involve everybody at this point. You, you all, everybody is working remotely um, if they're not reporting things, they're not doing things right, they're going to be susceptible. So what it means is the culture has to change in companies, move away from, yep, we checked the box, we got some dude that does security for us, or we've got, you know, this the, the CIO is responsible for it. It's true that we're accountable for it, but it is a shared endeavor. Um, and again, if then you have to have, obviously, the reference architecture, you have to have a framework to understand, you know, like the, the cyber kill chain, uh, you want to take a look at that and what likes happening around the globe today. Do you have protective and detective controls kind of wrapped around that? And 100%, as Anadeep said, this is going to grow for people who embrace that. It is not going to grow for those that do not. I think you've seen some of this stuff, right? You know, Mark, like, for example, right? It used to be traditional thinking is if we just educate all of our employees on all these risks, that 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 is good enough. So now that good enough has moved quite a bit far up. It involves a lot more collaboration. We need to continuously educate. Unfortunately, you know, the risk to the organization is is so high if things go wrong that you have to continually continuously educate your folks, especially with the digital transformation. The, the amount of power that some of our endpoints, so to speak, the laptops and the devices that our business uh, colleagues use, the, the disruptive power of some of these, this new technology is pretty high. So if we need to educate the folks, it's not going to be to your point, centrally managed that we can click a couple of buttons and secure the entire organization. It requires everybody to step up, learn, and from a, from a leadership point of view, to make sure that we make the time, the venue, and the content available for folks to be able to to do some of these best practices. So, so Ken, I think that's you know, I think those are the kinds of things that we see that that are uh, that are more sort of the big E, uh, the big uh, uh, R of the resiliency. It's not just the technology; it's the people, it's the the culture, the communication, both internally and externally. I think that makes up uh, the new new resilience, so to speak. Yeah, it really, it really does take everybody. I, I think that's a great place to stop. I uh, This has been a great conversation, and I've, I've really enjoyed it, uh, having it with you guys. As a wrap-up, I want to ask you guys to share a little bit from yourselves. So I'll just sort of throw this out. Um, you know, as you're 
hanging around the nerd bar this weekend, um, talking to CIOs and CISOs, as I'm sure you typically spend your entire weekend doing. Um, what are some things you're going to be talking about this week? What are some things you've learned or have kind of got your interest this week? For my, I, my interests tend to be at a, a geostrategic level, I must admit. So, you <laughs> of course know, I do. For me, I'm, I, I'm, I'm amazed that kind of the West or the global response to what's happening in Ukraine has remained consistent. Um, it hasn't spilled over in the cyber realm too much yet. It's spilling, it around, it's spilling over in other ways. Um, and I will add in there that looks, you know, Sweden and uh, Finland may be joining NATO. I found all those just rather fascinating things that you would not have thought of you know, for my entire lifetime that that these things would have changed in this direction. Awesome. Uh, mine is a little bit on the lighter side. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things is, especially with with with, with what's happening globally with, with work from home or the hybrid work, the circles that I hang out with, literally last week we were talking about this stuff. It's really a, a challenge right now how to, to figure out where, so the talent needs are going to be in order to address this. You know, how do we actually create an environment so our talent can can our our folks be the, and the company can sort of give their best as well as we can get the best out of them? There's a lot of points of views. It's how the hybrid work should work and how should we should secure it. Uh, but it's a really really interesting point. There's no conclusion to it yet, but that's something that's that's top of mind for us all the time when we talk about this stuff. Uh, in terms of saying like, how do we actually make sure that the organization and the company structured our policies are in place so that it's a fun place for our, our colleagues to work and at the same time the productive productivity is at the whole time high and we are a culture that, that that people want to be a part of so that's something that i learned last week that uh it's still it's still uh being cooked it's going to be a little while before it's it's all done uh there's no magical answer uh and it's going to take us a while but that's one of the reasons we love our job so much you know so it's a fun to be able to make a positive impact on, on not only the company and the industry, but hey, how do we make it a good place uh, for, our, for our people to work? Perfect. Well, thank you. Um, I, let's, let's, let's wrap it up there. So thank you, Andy Deep. Thank you, Mark. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast. The Entrust Cybersecurity Institute shares news and insights for IT and business leaders to help you protect and enhance your IT infrastructure. The Cybersecurity Institute leverages insights from Entrust, a global leader in protecting identities, payments, data, and infrastructure. See the show page for notes and links to our content. Our podcast was produced by Stephen Damone, and thanks for listening. Thank you.